while Evan and I were thinking about this week, I had this um, sort of half memory of a song from that first Peter. I knew there was a song that I grew up with about the devil going back and forth like a lion. It kept kind of tickling the back of my brain, and I found it. Uh, it was by, among other people, like the Gaithers, if people are like familiar, and there's this very peppy arrangement Uh, It is from the first Peter, and the tune is something like, Greater is he that is in me. Uh, So the idea being that God is internal to us. God is more powerful than Satan, who's prowling back and forth like a lion. And I thought, what a weird song to teach children. The chorus is sort of, the, the verses are like a little bit of patter, like, Satan is like a roaring lion going to and fro. And that's the kind of world I grew up in. I grew up with a cosmology where we were Christians and we were beset by the devil who was prowling around seeking to devour us. And not just evil in general, but the actual devil. Evil had a face, evil had a name, evil was out there, and it was coming for us. For us Christians, I mean. So that's the world I grew up in. One that included the very active persecution of Christians. So it was awful, but understandable, what happened in March of 1989. It was Easter, actually, 1989. And a group of missionaries from our church in northern Michigan had gone to Haiti to build churches, primarily to build churches and some schools. They'd been going for 10 years, and over 10 years, they contributed to the building of about 14 churches and schools. On Easter of 1989, they were coming back from worship when they were attacked. The way the story got told in our church and by my family was they got attacked by a mob of voodoo worshipers. The voodoo worshipers, the story went, were either enraged personally by the work of the missionaries or, but certainly related, had been whipped into a frenzy and driven to violence by Satan himself. 1989, I would have been 12 or 11 or 12. Roger Mercer's foot was cut off in the attack. I definitely remember this story. I remember it happening, but I hadn't thought of it in ages. My brother sent it to me this week with a note saying, do you remember this? He wrote, this story for me is the height of the bigoted imperialist phase of our Christian upbringing. The kind of person my brother is now, which is great. Roger Mercer's foot did not get cut off, by the way. That was a kid's overactive imagination. In my mind, I also, by the way, had Roger up on a horse when his foot got injured. But it happened as he was trying to fend off blows from a machete through an open car window, which was, I'm sure, any laughing I've done aside, terrifying. It was awful for them. I don't think it was Satan himself who made it happen. But our church and our theology did include this cosmology of good and evil, which is a good thing. Because it took evil seriously. I think sometimes people don't. 
In many ways, though, it was a bad thing because it made evil, in a kind of funny way, it made evil safe and understandable and and bounded, you know, like evil had a body and a single source. And it was limited. That was found and located in the person of Satan. And, and And the thing that you could do about that was to pray and to be aware and to be on guard. And the thing you could do about that was to know the source of evil and to know its antidote, which was Jesus, to know the right things. The cosmology of good and evil presents other problems, too, including the fact that it gives Satan an awful lot of power. It gives Satan a lot of power so that we, Christians, and God are constantly fighting and barely, barely overcoming the devil. We chose the last hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, because it sort of implies the same thing. Like, if you listen to the lyrics, you'll hear how powerful Satan is. Satan has no equal on earth. Devils are constantly threatening to undo us. You'll hear it. I mean, it's a good hymn, but weird cosmology. In the church I grew up in, and that kind of theology, the other thing that's hard to reconcile is that in it, the devil seeks so particularly to destroy Christians. Christians are the ones who face suffering. The thing in Haiti, therefore, I mean, that made sense to us. They were Christian missionaries, and they were trespassing on Satan's territory somehow. Satan had to fight back with machetes. Christians were under attack. We are under attack. And that's hard to swallow because, as you may have noticed, lots and lots and lots of people all around the world, regardless of faith, are suffering all the time in terrible ways, in systematic ways in ways that have lasted for generations, in ways that are brand new and turning their lives upside down. It is true that the first Peter that Annie read, it's true that it is written particularly to Christians experiencing persecution. It's not written to people in general who are experiencing persecution or suffering, just to Christians at a particular time. But it's also, it's also one of a cluster of books in the New Testament that mark a shift. First Peter is one of several letters that aren't written to a specific congregation, but written to the church, like the church universal. This is around the time when the church stops being a bunch of little gatherings of people, but the church is starting to think of itself as a thing. And First Peter is a letter addressed to the whole church. People who were following the way of Jesus were starting to form an institution the way that any grassroots movement with longevity does, the way that a congregation that met first in a living room and then in a storefront on Irving Park ends up with its own constitution and bylaws and a board and a building. If the movement was going to stick around, there was going to have to be some order to it. The church was also starting to need its own identity, and it was having to wrestle with the identity that was given to it by others. The word that we now translate as Christians or believers, it was an insult, like Christies. You're into that Christ guy, which little Christies. It's an insult. So the church was trying to figure out who it was in the face of that. And part of the work of this part of the New Testament, in order to fight the persecution that was happening, 
was to come out with a kind of reassurance that said, don't worry, don't worry. Christians aren't that disruptive. I mean, sure, you've heard that we preach liberation for the captive and equality of people regardless of gender and good news for the poor, but we don't mean that, like, literally. I mean, obviously we believe that women should obey their husbands, obviously. Obviously we believe that slaves should serve their masters, 1 Peter 2, other places in the New Testament. I mean, the liberation that we're talking about, I mean, it's kind of symbolic. Don't worry, Roman Empire. Don't worry. That's part of the work that happens in 1 Peter, even in the midst of the addressed Christians who were suffering. Don't worry. Sure, we seem like weird radicals, but we're not that radical. We're just like you, basically, plus you have a little, little belief in Jesus. Which maybe parenthetically raises the question of the ways that Christians do and don't face persecution now, who we join forces with. I mean, anyway. But actually, what would it mean if we lived into a sort of disruptive identity? If the church stopped saying, don't worry, we're not that disruptive. Communities that are truly marginalized often call for disorder. Abolish ICE! Abolish? Abolish ICE. Abolish the police. Abolish the prison system. People start to get itchy. That sounds chaotic. Marginalized communities often call for disorder. Every time I hear a radio report of some protest interrupting traffic downtown, there's always some, like, Joe on the street who's like, well, I don't know what interrupting my commute does. And I agree, but I worry that it might be because I'm on the wrong side of things. Truly marginalized communities often call for disorder and disruption. What would it mean to join forces with some kind of disorder? Could it lead to some kind of shared sense of how bad things are to acknowledge the evil that is prowling to and fro? Anyway, back to the people that were being written to in 1 Peter. The persecution they were experiencing had very little to do with what they believed. In the church that I grew up in, everyone thought that what made Satan mad in Haiti, that what puts a target on a Christian's back, is what you believe. We were taught that those Haitian missionaries were targeted because they believed that Jesus is the Son of God. What made them targets, what has the potential to make us targets, was our belief. But it is rarely belief that angers people in power. No one in power cares if we believe that families shouldn't be separated at our border. No one with power cares about this sermon at all. That I believe things ought to be different, that I believe we ought to be disruptive. What worries people with power is disruptive action. What'll get you on a U.S. watch list, like Vince and my friend Kaji, is showing up at the border and making noise. After the earthquake in Haiti in 2010, Pat Robertson on the 700 Club 
explained it this way, gave evil a face and a name, saying, well, in Haiti they got together and they swore a pact with the devil. Talking about Napoleonic French rule. People made a deal with the devil in Haiti, and that's why Haiti to this day is cursed. That's what Pat Robertson said. And even some Protestants in Haiti today have their own understanding of Haiti's pact with the devil. That's why Haiti has suffered so much economically, in terms of the earthquake, unrest. Haiti is again today, I mean right now, undergoing fiery ordeal started with a nationwide fuel shortage. Now there are violent protests. Maybe you've seen those pictures of billowing clouds of black smoke in the streets. Late Thursday night, there was news of the murder of yet another journalist who was covering it. In trying to make sense out of evil, people want to give it a name and a face. In scripture, it's Satan, the devil, the adversary, the accuser, demons. I mean, how else could you explain the scope of the evil? For some people today, for people in the church where I grew up, evil has a face and a name. It's a particular figure, one figure who is the source of all evil. One source who is as personal as God is, seeking out our weak spots and dragging us low and tempting us away from what God would have us do. It makes sense. I mean, even I can, can feel pull toward apathy or toward bitterness or toward resentment, toward hatred. I mean, only, of course, toward the right people. It makes sense. How else can you describe the scope of the evil? It would be so great if evil had a name and a face, to diagnose it and get our heads around it. But evil, in fact, has many names. It has many faces. It is both inherent to us and it is a force that's beyond our control. It's racism and it's the slave trade that was the foundation of the economy in Haiti and in the U.S., It is imperialism that always knows best, both for us and for them, whoever they are. It is the empire, whether it's called Rome, or as in 1 Peter, Babylon, or Napoleonic France, or the United States. It's empire, wherever those with power would direct the gaze of everyone else, orienting people toward the status quo and why it has to be this way. Empire that tries to distract all of the people from how evil evil is. There's evil theology that proclaims suffering is salvific, that uses this First Peter passage to say suffering is a sign of blessing. Theology that turns this passage into a theology of hope. There is a suggestion among theologians that what we need is a shared theology of hopelessness where people with relative privilege and power join with people who have been historically marginalized to say, this is hopeless. This is as bad as it gets. People are dying. We are in the middle of a fiery ordeal. I mean, what would it mean to live like that? Like I said when I welcomed you this morning, 
I don't think I have the answers to the questions about what to do in the face of this real scope of evil. I think probably I just have this question, and maybe I'll just ask it for myself. What would it mean to be that disruptive, to stand truly against evil?